0: Whoa!
1: From time to time, we check in on Light of the East with one of our standard presentations, and that is what's called the Ten Gifts of the Eastern Churches. There are many gifts that the Eastern Churches offer to the world and to the whole church, and there are many gifts that the Western Lung of the Church offers as well. And any particular person who talks about or does any presentations on Eastern spirituality will probably have their own ten gifts, (laughs) and some of them may overlap. Well, I have my own 10 gifts that I like to present from time to time here on Light of the East and also to review because these are the, I would call them the building blocks, the foundation of basically everything else we present here on Light of the East. So if you want to get your pencils out, take notes. If you're driving, pull off the road, stop and take notes. Number one to 10, we're going to go through the Father Tom loya version of the Ten Gifts of the Eastern Churches, the way, the ten ways in which the Eastern spirituality enriches the whole church, our lives, and the world. All right, ready for the first one. The first one, I'm going to say, is based upon a slogan we often use in our culture. We say that bigger is better. But I'm going to turn that around and say, bigger does not necessarily mean better or the only way. The Eastern churches tend to be much, much smaller than the churches of the Western lung of the church. So it's sometimes seen as though we're maybe less significant or we're just not very well known. We have a propensity, especially in our culture in America, because we're a big culture, we're big hearted, we're big in size, we're big everything. everything. We tend to think that what is bigger must therefore be better or the only way. But think of this, how big is a computer chip that runs your car or a factory, you know, a machine? How big is a little virus or bacteria that can kill someone or make us sick? How big is a kidney stone? How big is your toe when you stub it? But when you stub your toe, your whole body feels it. So we can go on and on with comparisons about something small can actually be very significant and sometimes even more significant. More than we realize. So the Eastern churches teach us a reality of life that just because something is bigger or more plentiful does not mean it is necessarily better. Everything has their gifts. Small things have their gifts, large things have their gifts. And everything is really indispensable in the grand scheme of things, in the way God created everything. Not all the stars in the sky shine the same way, do they? Some are further away, some are less bright, some are brighter, some are closer, some are bigger, some are smaller. But it's in being who they are that creates that beautiful starry sky. If they're all the same, it wouldn't be so beautiful. So the variation, the diversity, is part of God's ingenious plan in creation. And so it is in the church, too. So the Eastern churches teach us that bigger is not necessarily better or the only way. That there can be more than one way to Christ, one way to be Catholic in terms of the Catholic Church. There's an Eastern approach and a Western approach. So that's the first lesson. I think it's an important one for us here in America who, as I mentioned, have a propensity to think that things that are bigger must be better or the only way. The second gift is the influence that the Eastern Churches had at the Second Vatican Council. And basically what I mean by that, the influence on the church in the modern world, especially in the last several decades. I'm going to go through a, a brief list of some of those contributions that the Eastern Church has made in Vatican II. Now, the Orthodox were present, but they were there as observers. The Eastern Catholics, especially in terms of the Melkite Byzantine Catholic Church with their patriarch, they were there, and they were a little more active. So, from the influence of the East, and the reason why the influence is going to come from the East is because that is the other lung of the Church, and also, that is where everything started. It's like checking in with Mom, you know, with with our motherhood back to the womb, back to the starting point. And the church always does that whenever it has councils or is going to write major documents. It always checks in with the origins, with mother, and that's the Eastern churches. So some of the contributions that the Eastern churches made to the Second Vatican Council, which are seen in the developments, in the legitimate developments in the Western churches, are this, collegiality. In other words, a little bit less top-down kind of administration, a little more cooperation with local bishops and bishops with their priests and priests with their laity. So the idea of collegiality is an influence of the Eastern Christian spirituality to the Second Vatican Council. And when I say that they are the influences, what I mean also is that these were the spirituality, the practices, things that are innate to the Eastern churches. Now, is that the Western church copy them or should copy them. We're not talking about that. We're talking about checking in to the ancient venerable source of the church, and that would be in the East, and to see if there is something there that can help even the Western lung of the church. So collegiality is one of those gifts that under the category of the influence at the Second Vatican Council of the Eastern Churches. So there's another influence was the sense of enculturating the gospel Bringing the gospel to cultures and using the gifts of those cultures, their music, their expressions, their language, to live the gospel. In the Western Church, evangelization or missionary work meant largely bringing the Latin Rite to different areas of the world. The Latin Rite is very good at that, it's one of their geniuses, one of their gifts. But oftentimes what they did was they would come to a culture and demand that that culture learn the church and the prayer and so on in Latin and adopt customs that were, well, foreign to that particular culture. Not that they're bad customs at all, but that they would be foreign to that culture. The Eastern Church tended to, very early on, incorporate or enculturate the gospel in the culture it found itself in. So it would use the language, the vernacular of that particular culture in the liturgy. And this goes all the way back to the ninth century. So the Western Church began to be influenced by that in a positive way as a result of the presence of the East at the Second Vatican Council. Another influence is worship in the vernacular, which goes together with the previous item. Also, greater lay participation in the liturgy, parish councils, the restoration and significance of the diaconate, Holy Communion in both species, bread and wine. Baptism by total immersion. And there's even some talk today among theologians in the West of restoring the sequence of baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist. This is what the East preserves. Baptism, chrismation, or confirmation, and Eucharist are given to any baptized person regardless of age. So, when a baby, for instance, is baptized in most Eastern churches, that baby also receives confirmation and Eucharist all at that same time. So, it's the sequence, not the age, that matters. And the Western church has been looking into maybe restoring that custom in some way. The verdict is still out on that, but nonetheless, it's another influence of the Eastern churches at Vatican II. Okay, let's go on to our third gift, the transcendence of God. One of the things that the world needs today, and again, this is why Eastern spirituality is relevant. It's not just a history lesson. It is ancient, yet, as Augustine said about God, (laughs) something similar to the Eastern churches, it is ancient, yet always new. Ancient, yet ever new. The sense of the transcendence of God is vital today because we've lost that in a lot of ways. We've lost a lot of respect or sense of things that are greater than we are, people that are greater than we are, authority. And the transcendence of God is a good starting point to get everything else in order. It's a strong, strong element in Eastern spirituality. Number four, the sense of mystery. Now this, like number three before it, is also needed in our culture because we've become very demysticalized. In other words, we've become very pragmatic And we've lost that sense of mystery. And what we mean by mystery is that God is totally transcendent, but at the same time imminent. He's way beyond us. And the mysteries of God and truth and His created order are revealed to us. We know a lot of it. We live it, but at the same time, it lies beyond us. And that is what we mean by mystery. It's a paradox where we are at home in the intersection of that paradox, two seemingly opposite things. It's also an antidote for the dualisms we have today. We tend to live very dualistically. You know, we're Republican or Democrat, liberal, conservative, for me or against me, this or that. But what mystery does for us is it connects life. It makes things more integrated. It connects the sacred and the secular. It doesn't separate them out. It tries to bring the sacred into the secular so that everything we see in life, we see as connected with God. Instead of just, well, this is things that have to do with God or church, and this is church and holy things over here, and never the two shall meet. No, quite the opposite. In the sense of mystery, we integrate the two. We will pick up the rest of our gifts, starting with number five, when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion.
0: And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep light of the east on the air you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com that's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card with your help we can keep light of the east's illumination bright Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Will Cook Road Homer Glen Illinois 60491 and may God grant you. This is Bishop Christopher Coyne for OLPH Radio in Burlington Vermont and you're listening to Light of the East.
1: Ladies, would you like to know what it is that men really want? I am Father Thomas Lawyer with the Theology of the Body Moment for the Tabor Life Institute. In complement to woman's body, the body of a man is designed to act upon the environment, to go up against things greater than he is. Men are designed to defend, protect, tear down, build, resist, invent, in short, to accomplish the task. Their greatest desire, therefore, is to be told that they have what it takes. They measure up and have indeed accomplished the task. Conversely, a man's greatest fear is to be told that he is not adequate, that he is a failure. A man wants to see reflected in the eyes of his woman the essential message of his manhood. Yes, I do believe in you, honey. You are my knight in shining armor. Ladies, when a man hears that message, he will do anything for you. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit Taberlife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We are moving through what I consider to be the 10 gifts of the Eastern churches, the gifts to the church and to the world. These are my particular 10. And we do that from time to time on Light of the East because that's our foundation. That's where everything else springs out of that we present here. And it's also good to review that. So we're going to pick up number five now, the fifth, what I consider to be the gift of the Eastern churches. It's the concept of the human person, in other words, our anthropology. As I mentioned before, our starting point is God's transcendence, but he also is imminent. In other words, he is with us. And when we talk about the human person in relation to God, in the Eastern spirituality, we very much emphasize the starting point as man, the human person, the human race, being made in the image and likeness of God. And this is something that grace perfects. So, it's a very positive starting point. We are made basically good, and we just need to be perfected and move beyond sin. It's not like we're automatically defective and we have to be fixed up or made better. The starting point is we are good, but we need to be made more good, more perfect. And this concept is called divinization or theosis. And we hear about that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, where he talks about how we become partakers of the divine nature, so that becoming perfect, the absolute best versions of ourselves, is not something superhuman, it's, it is something naturally human. To be in the image-likeness of God, to grow in sanctity and holiness, is to be a normal or proper human being. That's what the saints were. Okay, number six, monasticism. Monasticism, as St. John Paul II said in his wonderful document, 1995, called Oriental which is translated Light of the East. Yeah, you got it. That's where we get the name of this program from John Paul II's document, Light of the East. And in that document, he says that monasticism is the reference point for all of the baptized, the reference point for all of the baptized. And that's a pretty powerful statement. And monasticism is that, because monasticism is a radical, we would consider it to be radical. When I say radical, I mean in the sense of being really true, being very rooted. That's what radical means. The word radical comes from radika. The word means to be rooted. Monasticism is a rooted, radical, living out of the same baptismal promise, the same call to holiness that all Christians have by virtue of baptism. So, that's why it's the reference point for all of the baptized. And it teaches us that life is about a spiritual warfare, and that asceticism is needed for that warfare. In other words, saying no to our fallen appetites, our disordered passions, so that we reach a state of what they call apatheia, where we get the word apathy. doesn't mean we don't care, it means we are no longer controlled by out-of-control passions. And as we do that, we grow in holiness. So monasticism, we'll come back to that later on, but monasticism is one of the great, great gifts of the Eastern churches to the Western world. The Western world, yes, it has monasticism, of course, and some of the most famous monks in the world, like Francis and Benedict. But it started in the desert of Egypt in the Eastern churches. All right, number seven, prayer. The kind of prayer that the Eastern churches uses, especially liturgically, is actually the same as theology. We use what's called dogmatic hymnody, where when we pray or chant our worship, we're basically making proclamations of our faith. A theological statement is being made by the way that we pray. We declare who God is, what he is, what he's done, what the truth is about God. And then we go on to ask his mercy and ask for the favors and things that we want from him. And then we conclude once again by proclaiming His glory, proclaiming what He is, and usually that means proclaiming Him as Trinity. Evagrius, a famous Byzantine monk, once said that if you're a theologian, you will truly pray, and if you truly pray, you will be a theologian. So in other words, it's coming to know God through prayer, through pure prayer, and to coming to know our faith through prayer. In fact, if you want to know what we really believe in the church, it just goes for east and west. It's a particularly strong point in the east. Look at how we pray. We take our liturgical texts, which are voluminous, and whatever is in there is what we believe. The way we pray is what we believe. So our theology is really what we're chanting. Or when we are praying, we're doing theology. We're doing theology, we're praying. So that's a gift of the Eastern churches, to the whole church and to the world, the sense of this integrated prayer and theology. Number eight, contemplation, or the sense of the sacred. Contemplative theology basically means to be able to observe in a very keen way God's presence in nature, how he is incarnated in the created order, all of nature, especially the human person. And to meditate on that, to be in the presence of that, to have that transform our inner self, our inner world, our spirituality. And this is why we also have sacred art, sacred chant, sacred space in our churches, because it all brings us into a contemplative sense of God. Sometimes we're asked by people, do your monastics, your nuns and your monks Do they have orders that are contemplative or apostolic or active? And that question, although a perfectly fine question, in a sense doesn't apply to the Eastern churches, because the form of monasticism that we use is both and. It is contemplative and active, or contemplative and apostolic all at the same time. Because in order to do anything, you have to first know what you're doing. You have to know that God is for whom you're doing these things for. So the contemplation animates the action. So the two go hand in hand. Think of it as Martha and Mary. In fact, in the liturgical texts, of the Eastern churches, in our prayers, we often refer to Martha and Mary as the two symbols of contemplation and action that are inseparable. They were sisters. They go together. So contemplation, the sense of the sacred, is animating our action our apostolic work. That's a gift of the Eastern Church. Number nine, liturgy. Liturgy is one of the best ways to come to know the Eastern Church as one of our strongest gifts. And liturgy has a lot to do with, in the Eastern Churches, has a lot to do with participation in a transcendent reality. It is in liturgy that we leave behind all that is really earthly. And we enter into something that is heavenly. It's heaven on earth. Another way I could say that is, it's not that we leave this earth because it's bad. Rather, we take the reality to this earth, of this life, and we unite it, immerse it so intimately into the next life, into heaven, that the two basically become one. And in fact, in most Eastern churches, if they're properly done, the ceiling is dominated by a grand icon of Christ, very powerful, huge, looming figure. It's called Pantocrator, and he's surrounded by angels. And what this is depicting is the heavenly liturgy, the ongoing heavenly liturgy that we enter into by virtue of our liturgy on earth, so that the two really become one. And that's why in the Eastern churches, the churches and the liturgy are very sensate. They're very kinesthetic, They're very experiential. There's something you taste and see and touch and hear and smell. That's why we use the so-called smells and bells (laughs) and lots of icons and lots of chant. The five senses, we believe, were created by God so that we could experience God through those senses in all these ways, by smelling God, you know, the fragrant incense, the touch of God, kissing an icon, touching the Eucharist, taking God in to our bodies, taking God in through our ears, our eyes, our nose, our hands. So liturgy is very, very participatory, and therefore it is very transformative. We come to liturgy to offer up everything, to leave behind what is not good, and to offer everything up to God in praise and thanksgiving. In the process, we transform ourselves. We are transformed by liturgy. The final and tenth gift, the presentation, the adherence, the observation, the emphasis, I can't think of enough words to describe it, of God as Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this makes all the difference in the world in so many, many things, in so many ways we believe in God, how God works, the meaning of nature, the whole divine economy, the whole order of creation, the human person, everything, everything depends upon our understanding and our observance, our celebration of God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a union and community of persons, yet one God. This gives a model for us of our relational lives, of our desires for love, for intimacy. It's a guide for marriage. It's a guide for the whole order of creation, for our relationship to everything, how to behave, how to be moral. Everything can be understood in light of God is Trinity. And God is Trinity is the one thing above all else that separates the Catholic Orthodox beliefs from all other beliefs. Only we believe in a God who is three distinct equal persons, yet one God. There are many gifts of the Eastern churches, but these are what I consider to be the top 10 gifts, at least what I consider to be. You may have your own, and that's great. Thank you for listening to Our Ten Gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear
0: Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. monsignor charles pope and i always say to my my people my parishioners for you i'm your pastor with you i'm your brother but from you i'm your son because they have formed me so beautifully over the years and taught me to trust god and to praise god and they brought the holy spirit alive in me in just ways i could never have imagined you know coming out of seminary i had all the intellectual stuff in the seminary but my priestly heart has been formed
1: by my people morning glory monday through saturday 7 a.m eastern on ewtn radio